Well, good morning. I see we're practicing social distancing from the front, so well done. You're safe from whatever it is I've got, so I don't... Uh, you have, uh, hopefully you have one of these, uh, packet that you could pick up in the back. If you still haven't gotten one, um, now would be the time even to skip out and grab it rather than waiting till later. You might miss your opportunity because, uh, when we don't take time to pass the elements around, it actually goes pretty quickly, uh, very quickly. And so you might miss your time if you don't go and grab one right now. Uh, open your Bible to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 29. We have not been preaching a series through Deuteronomy. We've been working through the book of Romans, but uh, we are approaching, you know, there's a lot of theology in Romans, if if you didn't know that, just to let you know. And uh, we've been working through that, and we're in the middle of chapter 8 right now, and uh, in this place in the book of Romans, the the theology really gets, um, can be heavy, can be difficult, can have emotional freight with us as we look at it. And so... I wanted to uh, pause from that journey in Romans just for a week and uh, spend some time here in Deuteronomy uh, 29 because, you know, Deuteronomy is light and fluffy, right? So we'll, uh, we'll go to Deuteronomy to take a break. But actually, it's not to take a break. It's to hear these words from Moses as he speaks to uh, God's people in chapter 29 of Deuteronomy. Listen to verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Let's pray. Father, we worship you this morning. You you created us, not because you needed us for any reason, but you created us. You created all things. And it wasn't because you lacked. It wasn't because you were lonely. It wasn't because you needed anything. It was out of your grace and your mercy to demonstrate your power and ultimately to demonstrate redemption. And so we worship you. We bow down before you and give you honor. And we praise you for what you've done for us in Christ, that you did indeed see that redemption through to the end to give salvation to sinners. We praise you that you've given us your word that tells us about you and what you're like and tells us about ourselves and what what we're really like and tells us how we can be redeemed and restored, placed into right relationship with you. Father, sometimes your word is heavy and sometimes it's difficult to grasp. Sometimes it, very often, it tells us what we don't want to hear. But we come this morning and praise you that you have given us your word and we praise you that you've given us this opportunity for us to be together to open your word together and discuss what is written here. And we pray that you would take your word by your spirit this morning, that you would do your work in us. So we, we welcome your work. We welcome your spirit. Pray that you would teach us from your word even now. 
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I first went away to Bible school, I had been a Christian for just a little bit less than a year. And I had been discipled. I had been reading my Bible. And, um, but I grew up in a home where we didn't, we didn't, uh, we didn't read the Bible. And, and actually when I became a Christian, I had to kind of scrounge around a little bit to find a Bible to read at all. And so once I finally found one and uh, read it and whatever, I kind of got started on reading the Bible. But when I went to Bible school as a relatively new Christian, I was intimidated. I was intimidated not by the school setting, not by all the newness and all that kind of stuff. That wasn't really what was intimidating. What was intimidating was that this was a Bible school, a place where you go to study the Bible. And I was... I remember being deathly afraid that the teacher was going to call on me in class and I wasn't going to know the answer because I didn't know any answers about the Bible. And so I would kind of try and hide behind the person in front of me and and, uh, play it cool and lay low and all that kind of stuff because I was intimidated. I was afraid. I was scared to death of the Bible, of not knowing the Bible, the fact that the Bible is a long book. And I like to read, uh, but I usually read stuff you know, particularly at that point, that was a lot fluffier than the Bible. But uh, I was intimidated and scared of the Bible and of what the Bible contained. Our passage today is going to address that issue. It's going to address God's revelation to us and how we deal with it, how we approach it, how we understand what we are to do with God's Word. You see, some things, some things when we think about God... When we think about the Bible, they're, they're complex. Uh, they're distant. They seem mysterious. But there are other things in God's Word that are right here, that are very plain, very simple. When it says, love your neighbor as yourself, that's not complex. That's not hard to understand. And so how do we distinguish between those things that are confusing, those things that are hard to understand, those things that are mysterious, and uh, those things that are near at hand? Well, our verse today addresses those topics, helps us to kind of look at those different categories and and examine what really is ours and what's not. And so looking again at Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. You see, there are some things that are hidden. There are some things that belong to Him. The verse calls them secret. They're, They're His. They belong to Him. And in this passage, in the context in which this verse is found, what is hidden, what is secret, is what will happen. That's the question they're asking. You see, if you look back at Deuteronomy 28 and into 29, you can see that chapter 28, uh, this is Deuteronomy. This is the second giving of the law. So if we remember our uh, history of Israel, we can remember that Israel had already been taken out of the land of Egypt. They had already uh, crossed the Red Sea. They'd already been given the law. They'd been living in the wilderness for 40 years or thereabouts at this point. And so the, there's a, a, a lot of time has passed between the time they came out of Egypt and now they're, they're approaching the land. They're about to go into the land, the promised land that had been promised to them. They're about to enter in. But that was 40 years ago when they were brought out of Egypt. It was 40 years ago when they received the law. And so not only was it a long time, I I can barely remember 40 years ago. That seems like a long time ago. 
But not only that, but if you remember, the generation that came out of the land of Egypt had passed away in the wilderness. So this was a whole new generation. They weren't even there to hear the giving of the law. They weren't even there to come out of the land of Egypt back in that time. So this is a new generation. And so you have these people, the nation of Israel, they've, they've been wandering in the wilderness all these decades. And now they're, they're, on, they're on, the, on the verge of going into the land, the promised land. And so Moses comes and he's, he's about to, he, he's in the process of reminding them. Actually, the whole book of Deuteronomy is Moses reminding the people of their agreement with God from 40 years ago. A second giving of the law. And so if you look at the beginning of 28, you can see probably some sort of a, a header in your Bible that says something like blessings for obedience. These are promises of blessing that are going to happen. That's uh, right above chapter t- uh, 28, verse 1. I have that in my Bible. Right before they're about to go into the land, they've heard the law, and now you have this, the, the uh, consequences given. If you obey this law, if you do what this law says as you go into the land, you will have these kinds of obedience. And these are great, kind, uh, great kinds of, uh, of blessing that they receive for their obedience. They have uh, large families and large crops and their, their, uh, all their cattle and uh, things like that. They reproduce well and they, they're, they're going to be protected from their enemies and it'll rain when it's supposed to rain and the sun's going to shine when it's supposed to shine. And these are blessings that they are going to receive in the land as a result of their obedience. Well, that's good news, right? Everybody likes to hear that. Everybody wants to pay attention, but that only goes for like 14 verses. <laughs> and so verse 15 of chapter 28, then now you get to the curses that result from disobedience. So the idea is, Israel, you're going into the land. If you obey the law, these great things will happen. But if you disobey the law, essentially the reverse of all of those great things will happen. Right? You, you won't be able to have, you know, large crops and, and you, your, your, your enemies are going to come and attack you. And when you want rain, it's going to, you know, be hot and sunny. And when you want the sun, it's going to be rainy. And it, you're going to be you're going to be cursed in the land. And more than that, more than just cursed in those ways, but if you persist in that disobedience, you're actually going to be driven out of the land and sent into exile so that you're going to lose the land. And so these people have these statements given to them of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And having given those, now you get to chapter 29 of Deuteronomy and you see that there's a renewal of the covenant that was given at Sinai. There's a renewal of that same covenant saying, all right, now you know what the stakes are. Here's the covenant. And now we're about to go into the land. Remember, if you obey, you have these blessings. If you disobey, you have these curses. So what's going to be the question on their mind? Well, which is, which is it going to be? Which are we going to receive? Are we going to have, is this, is this going to be a good thing? Is it going to be exciting and we're going to be blessed and we're going to be a powerful nation and we're going to grow in wealth? Or are we going to Are we going to end up in exile somewhere? What will be? What will happen? What's going to happen to us? That's the question that's on their mind. We've heard these curses given for disobedience and blessings given for obedience, but which are we going to receive? What's it going to be like? You ever ask the question, what's going to happen to me? What, What will it be like for me? What... What will I do? What, what's it going to be like if I go away to school, if I take this new job, if I, if I undergo this new thing, what's going to happen? What will it be like? 
Well, the answer here from this verse back in 29:29, when they ask that question of God, what's it going to be like for us? His answer is really not to answer. He says that that's a secret thing that belongs to the Lord. The Lord knows what's going to happen with you. The Lord, Lord knows what's going to happen with, uh, with your obedience or disobedience and your blessing or cursing and where you're going to end up. That's a secret thing. He knows it. It's not for you to know. Now, of course, we who have read our Bibles know how the history of Israel goes. And we know that it results in them obeying at times in some ways, but then usually and in, in worse degrees disobeying and winding up being cursed in different ways and eventually exiled from the land. So we know, but they at that time did not know as they were wondering. And this is one of the hidden things. What will happen? What will it be like? What's going to happen to me? The Lord knows and he doesn't tell us. That's his secret thing. Belongs to him. And I think there's a second question that's related to that. And that's your second point there. Why this happened? Why this happened? Have you ever asked the question, why? Maybe tragedy has happened. Something hard is happening in your life. Maybe, maybe things didn't go the way you wanted them to go. And you ask, why? That's the question you really want the answer to. And when people come in to me for counseling, <clears throat> maybe they're going through difficult times or they're just trying to understand their life and, and why things are the way they are. Maybe, the, maybe it's their own struggles, their own sin. And what's their first question? Why? Why is this happening to me? Well, I want to encourage you that biblically speaking, that's one of the secrets of God. We don't know. Now, I can answer you from Scripture that if you're a Christian, God is causing all things to work together for good for you, to those who are called according to His purpose. I can tell you that. But in the midst of tragedy, if that's what I tell you, and if that's all I tell you, are you going to receive that as good news? Is that going to be helpful to you? In what way is God working that out for your good? I have no idea. And the Bible just doesn't tell us. Now, oftentimes, after time has passed, you can look back on a situation. You can maybe a hard part in your life or a time of tragedy. And you can say, well, <clears throat> I see that the Lord brought certain things out of that. I see that he, he blessed me. He changed me. He worked it out for my good. I can see some ways where maybe that's the case. But even when we have the benefit of time to look back at situations like that and we think we know, we still have to hold that answer to why with an open hand because we don't know because God hasn't told us because that's a secret thing. He's not revealed it. And so when it's someone comes in asking the question why, it's tempting. <clears throat> it's tempting to want to give them an answer. But any answer that you give has to be tentative and usually will be hurtful if it's a painful situation. He just doesn't tell us why he does things. In the end, we'll understand it. He'll show us uh, in, in, in heaven, we'll know. But now he doesn't. And so that's the second thing that's a, a secret thing. It's a hidden thing. And that is, is why this thing happened. But there's a third thing that I want to draw our attention to. What I speculate. What I speculate. Now, if you are a Bible study leader or you're someone who 
leads any kind of Bible discussion or small group or prayer meeting or whatever, you know that there are times when it's hard to get conversation started. When you feel like you're the only one talking and you try to wait for someone else to jump in to respond to a question, you got nothing, you hear crickets. And, but if you want to get a good conversation started, if you want people to chime in, if you want there to be like no dead air at all, ask a question that is about speculation about the Bible. Ask a question for which there is really no biblical answer. And people will have ideas all day. Ask a, a question that, that is not directly tied to a text, that's not uh, straight out of the Bible, and you will see that people will love to jump in. They will love to talk about it. Thank you. They, they, they are excited to uh, address this issue, this question. For example, thanks, Mark. For example, the story is told that St. Augustine was uh, approached one time by a skeptic, someone who came to him and, and didn't believe any of this stuff that Augustine was saying. And so kind of in a cynical way, he asked him, okay, Augustine, what was God doing before creation? What was God doing before creation? You ever think about that? I mean, if, if you want to start discussion in your Bible study, just ask that question. And you'll get people with all kinds of ideas and, you know, I don't know, aliens. I don't know what they might end up talking about. But, but here, here, was, here was Augustine's answer. And it, it might be surprising. Here was Augustine's answer. Remember, the question is, what was God doing before creation? And Augustine said he was creating hell for the curious. Now, now that, on one hand, seems a little harsh. And I don't think he meant it in a harsh way. I think this is what he meant. The Bible tells us zero about what God was doing before creation. It just doesn't say what God was doing before creation. Why then should we waste our time speculating? And worse than wasting time, why then would we form opinions about things God has concealed from us? So questions like, what was God doing before creation? Or what was Jesus doing as a child and as a young man? Oh, you can start good conversation. People can debate what it was really like, what he was really like, what, what did he do? But, you know, the Bible gives us one incident of something that happened when he was 12. And so the fact that it doesn't tell us anymore tells me that the Bible doesn't care for us to know anymore than one incident that happened when he was 12. What was Jesus like as a kid? Uh, uh, I think a lot of times... There are a lot of es uh, eschatology, end times uh, speculation that's along these lines. I think there are certain things laid out in, in Scripture about the end times and what they're going to be like, but it's so easy and it's fun. It's exciting to enter into speculation about really how all things are going to play out, and it takes about a half a second to go beyond what Scripture says on those topics. And I, I have... I have thoughts on why that's the case, why we love to speculate about Scripture. I think, first of all, it's, uh, th there's no governor on it. There's no accountability. To, to discuss and ponder the existence of aliens, for example, you're not going to find anything about it in here. You can, you can find some basic prim principles, and I do have opinions on that, by the way, that I'd love to give you at another, another time. <laughs> but to speculate about it and think about a question like that that the Bible doesn't really address... Well, I can have one opinion and hold it strongly. And you can have another opinion and hold it strongly. Who's to say who's right? So we both go home happy. 
I've got my opinion. You've got yours. And there's no one to judge between our two opinions. Great. That was a great discussion. Right? It's exciting. It's fun. Because there's no accountability. But as soon as you start talking about a topic that is biblical, for which I can find another passage, another verse, that contradicts the opinion that you have, well, that's less fun. Because now, now I, I might say something to be corrected, and I don't want to be corrected. And now I, I said my ideas and what I thought was the case, and you came, came out with biblical truth and proved me wrong, and uh, now I didn't go home happy. Right? So that's, that's no fun. I think that's the first reason people enjoy it so much. There's no accountability. There's no governor on what you can say. But there's a second reason. And that is, if you have your speculative opinion about something, whatever that thing is that the Bible doesn't talk about, there's going to be an application in life from that. But since it was only speculation, I'm not bound to live by it. So I'll let you speculate till the cows come home. But there, I don't have any accountability to be obedient to what you speculated about. And in the end, you don't have any accountability to be obedient to what you speculated about. So speculation is something that we need to be very cautious of. We need not to speculate beyond what God has revealed in the Bible. By the way, he's revealed plenty in the Bible. It's long enough to warrant the rest of your life study. It has enough in it for you to focus on that rather than going into speculation This is what Paul cautioned Timothy about in 1 Timothy 1. He said, Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. You see how he pitted those two against one another? Speculation on the one hand and stewardship from God. We have been given God's word. And we are to be stewards of God's word. We're going to talk more in the next point about what that means. But we have some points of application before we go any farther. We need to be content to leave the secret things of the Lord secret. If he hasn't told us, it's because he knew it was better for us not to know. What your future will be. You've seen enough time travel movies, right, where the guy knows what his future is going to be and so he ends up messing it up, right? That's a, that's a silly, you know, sci-fi kind of concept. But what would we do differently if we knew how things were going to end up? How would I have behaved differently at 20 if I knew what, what I was going to be like at, you know, in my 40s? He hasn't told us. And he doesn't tell us what the future will be for us. <clears throat> the same is true for the why question. Why certain things happened? We don't know. We don't know. We're challenged by Scripture to trust in Him and His goodness. Not to trust in how satisfied we are by the answer to the why question. Now, I personally uh, love to answer Bible questions. I love to answer questions about God. It is literally one of the, my favorite things in the world to do. And when people come to me with some of these questions, I have to do the dreaded, what I don't want to do, and I have to say, I don't know. Because we don't know. Because God has not told us. Because it's a secret thing. And so there are things discussed here, mentioned in this passage, that are the secret things that belong to the Lord our God. They are concealed. But there are those things that are revealed. 
Look at our verse continue, verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. There are things concealed, things hidden, and there are things revealed. Primarily, first of all, what I should do. What I should do. How am I supposed to behave? You see, for the nation of Israel, standing on the border, about to go into the land, the promised land that's been given to them, they're wondering what's going to happen. What's it going to be like? Is it going to be blessing or is it going to be cursing? What's it going to be like? What's it going to be like? And Moses responds and says, those are the secret things. They belong to God, but you have revealed things. Things that have been revealed to you, and primarily that is the law, how you are to behave, how you are to behave towards God, how you are to behave towards one another. That's clearly revealed. The why questions, the what's going to be questions, the other things I might speculate about are not revealed, but what we should do, how we should behave, what our life is to be like is spelled out, spelled out clearly. That's not a question. Now, there are some, some circumstances where what's the right thing to do? I understand that. But in general, God has told us what He wants to do, what He wants us to do, how He wants us to behave. So what I should do is the primary answer that's given right here. That's a revealed thing. The big questions that I might ponder and speculate, answers aren't given to those. What I should do? how I should treat you, how I should treat God, those are answered. That's clear. And secondly, and related to that, is how I should worship. So first, what I should do, and secondly, how I should worship. I mentioned that the law was the way that uh, was spelled out for the nation of Israel of what they were supposed to do, how they were to set up their nation, how they were to govern themselves, how they were to relate to themselves, to each other, to uh, neighboring countries, and how they were to relate to God. You see, when you read through uh, Exodus, and probably uh, each of you, well, I don't know, each of you, I won't blame you, but a lot of Christians, every January 1st, they think, you know what would be a good idea? I'll read the Bible this year. So they start in Genesis 1, right? And you make it through the first book of the Bible because it's exciting and a lot of things happen and a lot of stories. And then you get into Exodus and a lot of stories and fireworks and excitement for about 19 chapters. And then, you know, chapter 20, you have the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus. And then you have other laws that follow. And what happens after those laws that are given? This is probably where we bog down is right about here. The giving of the tabernacle, right? Unless you're like a construction guy or something and like all those little details about how, what size the panels were to be and, and what they were, uh, the fabrics were to be made out of and what color and arranged in what way and with what kind of furniture and what do you make the furniture out of and what does it look like and all of those kind of details. Unless you're someone who's into those kind of details or you're looking for something particular, that's probably about where you bog down. Because it's chapters of describing that stuff. Here's the tabernacle, here's the size, here, here's how you put it together, the range it, all this kind of stuff, and then you take this kind of furniture and put it in there. It's a big, long chapter after chapter after chapter description. And then what happens just a few chapters after you're done with the description? This is a test to see who's read Exodus. Just a few chapters after that description, now you have the same description because now they're building it according to those instructions. And this, this is how it's put together in these kind of colors and these kind of... Fa- it, it's chapters of that kind of stuff. Why? Why? 
Why that kind of detail? It's because they were being told how to worship. How to worship God. We were studying with our family last night what God is, what God is like, what makes God God, what are some essential aspects of Him. And this is, this is what the Bible reveals about God. He is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being and wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's what God is like. Now, there are a lot of extreme statements in there. There are a lot of statements that we, frankly, are the opposite of. And so for someone who is a finite being, a small being, and sinful, no less, someone who is not always truthful, someone who is not always holy, who is not always righteous, but is fleshly and mortal and changeable, for someone like me to try to approach the holy God is bad news. That's a bad idea. Because He is holy. He is all those things I just read. He's supreme. He's all-powerful. And I'm small and sinful and dirty. And for me to come into His presence would mean my death. And so what God is doing in the book of Exodus and in other places is He is revealing just exactly how sinful man can have access to holy God. And so He's laying out the tabernacle. He's laying out the furniture. He's laying out what the sacrifices are to be like. He's laying out what the priesthood is to be like. He's laying out all this stuff. He's detailing for them what worship is to be like. How can worship happen? Now, as we think about it from the New Testament perspective, because we don't live in Old Testament times, we live in New Testament times, but we reflect back on the giving of the law. These are the things that should have been going through the mind of a person who was a believing Jew at that time. I mean, he, he knew the Ten Commandments. He knew what God wanted of him. And if he was an honest person trying to obey God's Ten Commandments, he would realize, and it wouldn't take long, that he cannot obey them. That he, he may be able to keep himself from committing outward adultery, but it's still there in his heart. He, he, he can keep himself from committing outward murder, but it's still there in his heart. And so he would realize that he is guilty. He has guilt before God, and, and the demands of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, are just too much. And so what would that cause him to do? Well, the faithful Jew would then go from that, and he would realize, I've got sin. I need to go and have my sin dealt with. And so he would go and get a bull or a goat or whatever the sacrifice would be and he would go to the tabernacle and he would lay his hands on the head of the animal and he would pray transferring the guilt of his sin to that animal and they would kill the animal to show that his sins meant death. But how long would it take for that man to realize that's a goat? The sins of a human are very different than the death of a goat. And how long would it be before this believing Jew in the Old Testament would realize that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin? They just can't do it. And then he would be left, what am I going to do? I still have this sin. I still have this guilt. I think, look at the Ten Commandments. I look at the moral law and I realize I can't do it. I mean, God could do it. 
That's God's character, but I can't do it. And then I've got these sacrifices where I'm supposed to offer a bull or a goat. I'm supposed to offer an animal that is an insufficient sacrifice for me. My sin is far worse than the death of that animal. And he would realize God is pointing me somewhere. God is directing me somewhere. He is directing me to the time when he himself will provide the fulfillment, the final sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice. Finally, a sacrifice who gives himself that is worthy to pay the penalty for my sin, for my guilt. And so the Old Testament law and those instructions about worship were not just given because God's picky. Not just given because God's a stickler. They're given because God is demonstrating for us how we are to come to God. Obedience to the Ten Commandments will not work because you will not obey the Ten Commandments. Sacrifices you might make to make up for that sin that you have will not suffice because they are insufficient. They are are inadequate sacrifices for your sin. It requires Jesus. It requires the Son of God Himself who did obey the Ten Commandments who fulfilled the law, who walked in obedience to the Father always, and then gave himself in your place and mine on the cross to pay that penalty where the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do it. But the blood of Christ himself availed for us to take away our sin, to give us forgiveness. This is one of the revealed things. And today we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And it looks a little funny to do it this way, but we are celebrating this truth of what Jesus has done for us because one of the things revealed in God's Word is how He is to be worshipped, how we can worship God at all. But then thirdly, we come to another point. What God has given us to know. What has been revealed is what God has given us to know. Well, you think that sounds redundant. It's not meant to be redundant. Listen to Jeremiah 9. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. Listen carefully. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. What are we to boast in? What's, the, what's of such high value? That we understand Him. That we know Him. There's a degree of understanding that is required of us. God has revealed to us in His Word what He's like. He expects us to know that. He revealed it because He wanted us to know it. I said earlier, the things that are concealed are concealed because He didn't want us to know them. It's not good for us to know those things that He's not told us. But what He has revealed in Scripture is good for us to know and is a mistake for us not to know. Listen to this from one theologian. He said, two things, therefore, talking about this verse, two things, therefore, must be distinguished here. The one... What God has revealed in His Word, revealed stuff. The other, what He has concealed. The former, what He has revealed, we cannot despise unless wickedly. 
Meaning we can't ignore it without being wicked. And second, the latter, what is concealed, we cannot investigate into it unless we do so rashly. It's concealed. It's not for us. Leave it alone. But what has been revealed, we must pay attention to. Going back to the quote, to neglect things revealed argues ingratitude. You are unthankful to God that he conveyed truth to you about himself in his word. But to search into things concealed argues pride. There's a point of application I want us to make right here. I said at the beginning of our message that we are approaching some deep waters in the book of Romans. Very deep waters. And by the way, as we approach those and as we work through those passages and deal with those topics, I encourage you to come ask me questions. Whether it's after the service or whether it's coming in to see me during the week, uh, whether it's by email, though it would be best to talk face-to-face just because email, you can misunderstand each other. I, I desire to answer your questions. I desire to work through together what God has revealed in His Word. So don't, uh, don't be shy in that regard. But here's the application. Work to understand what is coming up in Romans. Work to understand it. You already have ideas of what Romans 8, 9, 10, 11 means. You already have them in your mind. My challenge to you and the challenge from this verse is you need to challenge those ideas and work to understand what is being said. Don't rest on what you learned 30 years ago. Don't rest on what someone you love deeply told you about it. Work hard to understand what is in the passage. It is our responsibility before God to do the work to understand that. It's my responsibility as a preacher to work hard to understand it and to make it as understandable as possible to you. That's my job. But part of your job as a Christian is to take that thing that has been revealed and make it your own. So it's going to require hard work. When we read Scripture, when you read Scripture, if you are not occasionally or even often confronted by what you read in Scripture, I wonder what you're reading. If you're not challenged, corrected, even rebuked by what you're reading in Scripture, I wonder what you're hearing in your mind as you're reading God's Word. This is true for all of us. When we read God's Word, He is confronting us. None of us has a perfect understanding of Him. None of us has a perfect understanding of the Bible. None of us has a perfect grasp on all that God is trying to tell us. We are always wrestling through. We are always working in, trying to understand what God has told us in His Word. And very often, that means I hear things in the Word I don't like initially. And so we need to be open to that. What God has revealed, He has given us that we would know them. There's, a, there's one more application here, and it's, it's related to all the, those who've come before. And that application is this. All too often, we are self-satisfied in, in what we already know. We're content with what we already know and understand about the Bible. We're content where we are. And when you hear something new, the temptation is to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I knew that. I knew that. And go on without having addressed it. We need to be open to God's word. We need to be willing to be submitted to God's word. 
and not be content with what we currently know, not be content with ourselves that, yeah, I, I have a good understanding of the Bible and, I, and I, I love the Bible. I've been going to a Bible preaching church my whole life. So, yeah, I've heard it all. We need to be open to what God has for us from his word. Third point, going back to Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There are things that are hidden, there are things that are revealed, and there are things that are for me. That The word that means purpose, the goal for which God revealed what he has revealed in his word, that we would respond to it. That we would respond to it. First of all, we are to obey God's commands. The big goal of understanding what we read in the Bible, the big goal is that we would respond in faith and obedience to that. And so, we are to obey God's commands. What we are told to believe from Scripture always has an element to it where it works itself out in our life. Always. And that is because, secondly, life comes from beliefs. Life comes from beliefs. I was talking to an unbeliever not long ago. And I was challenging him about his life. And I was challenging him about mainly his unbelief. And he retorted to me, you don't know what I believe. And I thought, well, I didn't, I didn't answer him at the time. At first, I kind of thought, well, I guess he's probably right. I don't really know. But then I remembered Oh, no. What we believe on the inside always comes out. You can see what a person believes by looking at their life. You can see what is on the inside by what comes on the outside. And I knew by looking at this unbelieving man that he doesn't believe. He may have certain opinions or entertain certain curiosities about Jesus or about the Bible or whatever. But deep down, you can see what he believes by what he lives out in his life because our life comes from our beliefs. For example, one person mistreats another person because he believes that that he and his needs are more important than that guy's. And that's why he mistreats him. Get out of the way. Get out of my way. I'm, I will destroy you if I have to to get what is good for me because that's what he believes. Our life comes from beliefs. And then thirdly, that, that really camps on the importance of beliefs. Our passage today is talking about discerning between the things that are hidden, that are kept secret from us, and the things that are revealed to us. And the things that are revealed to us are not always fun to study. They're not always in line with what we might naturally think. They may be challenging to us. Surprise, surprise, God who is holy and our Creator might challenge his creatures. He does that from his word by what he reveals. And the things that we believe, even when we come to the passage of Romans 8 through 11, and we talk about things like the sovereignty of God and salvation, and where does the the will of man fit into that, and how does all that work together? Even a belief like that, even a topic like that, shows itself in our lives. If I were to pray with you for 20 minutes... I, I, could, I could discern what you believe about those topics by the way you pray. If I were to live with you through a difficult time, through a time of suffering and struggle, 
I, I could begin to tell you what you believe about those topics. What we believe even about those things, which to some seem like they're just questions to be discussed in seminary and they've probably left, you know, better left put away. No, they show themselves because of the importance of our beliefs. Well, today, one of the things that's revealed is revealed here. So go ahead and, go ahead and take out your elements as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. The importance of our beliefs. There is no more important belief than what we celebrate here at the Lord's Supper. Go ahead and take a moment and pour your pour the cup. Please be careful not to spill. I will do my best also. Unless you want to spill on yourself, in which case, feel free. Why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Did you know there are, there are uh, churches, there are people who believe that uh, taking this, doing what we are about to do, going through this, uh, this ceremony, this ritual, this thing as they see it, actually takes away your sin. So that if you, if you take the elements of the Lord's Supper, then your sins have been forgiven because of the fact that you did that, that thing. Well, if you believe that's the case, I don't believe that's the case, and I'm about to explain why. But if you believe that's the case, if you believe that taking of this bread and taking of this cup will wash away sin, how are you going to live your life until the next time you get to wash away sin? Well, you kind of got to get out of jail free card, don't you? I mean, you just have to go to church again, take the elements again, and you'll be cleansed once again by what you just took, right? So you might begin to see an aspect of that belief in a person's life. But what are these elements really about? Is this a, a re-sacrificing of the Lord? It's not. We're not re-sacrificing the Lord when, when we do this. This is a, this is a celebration. This is a, 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 out of obedience to Jesus, doing what He said we should do. That these elements point to Him. These elements point to what we talked about from the Old Testament, that the believing Jew in the Old Testament who tried to obey the Ten Commandments and found that he couldn't and they had sin and he went and he offered sacrifice and he realized that sacrifice is inadequate and he's left in a place where all he has left to do is cry out to God? Well, when Jesus comes on the scene, he's the fulfillment of that. Jesus comes on the scene and obeys the Ten Commandments. Jesus comes on the scene and then gives himself as an offering, a sacrifice to pay the penalty for that sin. So he, he comes in as the one who is the fulfillment and the completion of all that the law pointed to. And so he comes in and offers himself. And so when we celebrate this, and we're just about to, the Lord's Supper is a celebration for Christians. It's a celebration for those who have trusted Christ, who realize I have nothing of my own to offer God. I have no righteousness that would, that would merit me any kind of favor from God. I don't have it. I just don't have it. I've got sin instead. I lack righteousness, but I've got a pile of sin. The person who realizes that the only place I can go with that is Christ himself, who was full of righteousness and yet paid penalty for sin on the cross. 
And so if, if that's not you, if you don't know Christ, if you have not understood your own need and lack and thrown yourself upon the mercy of God in Christ, then just let, let, the, let the elements pass. Don't, uh, don't take them at this time. This is for something for Christians to do. As we're celebrating Christ, who is the, the one who is the way for us to worship God. And Christians, as we approach this, this should be a reminder for us of why exactly Jesus came, lived holy, and died. Because of our sin. Because of our sin. And so, even this last week, if you reflect on your own life, you'll find that there's sin. Some kind of unbelief, some kind of hard heart, rudeness to other people, and maybe, maybe much, much larger sins than that. You've got sin in your own life. Each of us does. So what do we do? Well, we go back to Christ and we realize I've got this sin and Jesus paid for it. And so we confess it to him. We forsake that sin. We don't, we don't want to do that. That's, that's not our Lord. Jesus is our Lord. And we confess that sin to him. We forsake that sin and he forgives us. He gives us joy and peace and life because of what he's done. And so, Christian, even as we're approaching this, be, be in prayer, be in contemplation, confessing your sins to Him. Not because you should feel weighed down because of the weight of your sin. Sin is awful and evil. But the Christian knows that. The Christian also knows, and Christ died for that. And so we can confess it to Him and place it on Him. And we realize, I stand before God, having peace with God, purely because of what Christ has done. I have nothing to offer. So even as we're reading these passages and praying together, be, be thinking about that. Be worshiping Jesus in that way. First, we come to the bread. A reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we hold in our hands the bread. And we thank you that you gave your body to be broken and bruised and pierced in our place. That body that had lived holy in a pure way your whole life was now tortured and hung on a cross so that I could be redeemed to pay the penalty for my sins and for our sins. So we rejoice and we thank you for this, your body. We pray in Jesus' name. Jesus said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Next we come to the cup. Continuing in 1 Corinthians 11. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Lord Jesus, we hold this cup and we think about your blood shed for us. We 
think about your life's blood being spilled out. We think about the fact that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And we think about how much greater the sacrifice we have is than, than some believing Jew in the Old Testament with a bull or a goat shedding its blood and realizing its blood is insufficient. My sin is worse. But I thank you for your own blood, Jesus. The fact that you gave your life, the fact that you spilled your blood and your blood is sufficient. The giving of your life is sufficient to pay the penalty for my sin so that I can stand before you washed clean, having been forgiven of my sins because of Christ. I thank you and I praise you and I worship you in Jesus' name. Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm going to uh, pray for us in a moment and read a passage of Scripture. But before that, I want to remind you that uh, we're, of course, not passing any offering plate or anything like that. There's a box in the back of the room. There's a plate in, uh, in the foyer out there. I also want to remind you that this is uh, the week of the month where we do benevolence giving. And uh, at this time, with jobs being uncertain and, and stuff like that, we want to be prepared to help those who are in financial need. And so if you want to give uh, towards benevolence, you can do that just right uh, benevolence on the envelope or on the check or whatever and put it in one of those places. Let me read to you from Romans chapter 11. And we've read this verse in conclusion of uh, passages before, but I think today in light of the, the revealed things and the secret things of God, I think this passage even uh, has, has more uh, weight and uh, punch today. Listen to this from, from Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice and, and worship you. We thank you that you have made yourself known to us, that you didn't uh, leave us to fumble around and try and figure out in conversation and speculation in our own brains who you are and what you're like and how we can know you. And Instead, you've communicated to us in your word. We, we praise you and we worship you. And I pray that you would help us to worship you as you have revealed yourself in your word. And I pray that you would help us to worship you in the ways that you have revealed yourself to be worshipped in your word. We, we are in awe. And we rejoice in this salvation that we have in Christ. Knowing that we had no way to appease you, to make ourselves acceptable to you because of our own sin and guilt. But you sent Christ. We praise you for Jesus who obeyed where we have disobeyed and who offered his perfect 
invaluable life to purchase us from death. So, Father, we worship you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Thank you for being here, and you're dismissed.